Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Happy you can join me today from my office on the 29th floor here in central Hong Kong as we together study the Come Follow Me curriculum for June 8th through the 14th. And this week we will be discussing Alma chapters 8 through 12. Well, really not much to update uh, in Hong Kong, although it seems like if you're uh, living in the U.S. and watching this, it seems like things are getting very interesting there. Uh, I don't want to get too political uh, on this, uh, in this lesson, um, so I think uh, actually the lesson in some ways will kind of uh, speak for itself. I think there's some important lessons that we can uh, take away uh, from today's uh, readings that are rather applicable to uh, the situation that is uh, happening in the U.S. Other than that, I'm really not going to say much. But here in Hong Kong, it's been uh, fortunately peaceful. Um, we'll see what happens as things continue to, to go forward uh, here in Hong Kong, especially in terms of relationships between Hong Kong and uh, mainland China, and then adding the U.S. And, and to that, it uh, always gets a little bit interesting. Well, as a reminder, last week's lesson, we discussed uh, Alma's, Alma chapters 5 through 7. And in those, we saw Alma's uh, personal uh, sermons to two different bodies of saints. Chapter 5, it was the church in Zarahemla. They had been struggling, so Alma gave them a lesson about the importance of uh, go, undergoing the mighty change of heart. And then in chapter 7, to the church in Gideon, they were doing a little bit better, so he was uh, able to be a little more direct with them. Um, and uh, so in today in chapters 8 through 12, there's a lot in here. Uh, this is just some of the most interesting, uh, one of the more interesting stories in uh, the Book of Mormon has to do with uh, the church in Ammonihah and uh, Alma's, attempt, Alma's attempt to establish a church and what happens uh, in Ammonihah as he does so. Um, I think as we study, I mean, these are just incredibly powerful story. We have Alma uh, attempting to teach there. He's he's rejected. Uh, an angel tells him to return. He does. He he uh, meets a, a a new friend, an Amulek, uh, who becomes his mission companion. Uh, they teach together, uh, have some success, but eventually the city's heart is so hard they burn. Uh, alive all of the people that are converted because of them. Uh, and, and then they're cast into prison, the prison walls fall down, um, and, and they are delivered. Uh, one would can only imagine the, the pain <clears throat> that, uh, that Alma must feel uh, because of what happens in this city. Uh, to see the people that believed his message to have them murdered because they believe that message uh, must be unbelievably painful to him. To feel responsibility uh, because 
innocent women and children lost their lives because they simply believed on the words that you taught. Uh, what an incredibly tender mercy it was that he at least had confirmation that this is what he was supposed to do from an angel. And I think that must have been an incredibly important, uh, an incredibly, it must have relieved an incredible burden to Alma to know that this wasn't just his own, his own desire to push through and makes, you know, make good out of a difficult situation that ended spectacularly, but rather he had an angel that had told him to do so. Um, that, that must have been incredibly relieving to him, uh, although no doubt he absolutely felt horrified and, and crushed uh, because of the tragic result of what happened uh, in the city of Ammonihah. Uh, so let's, let's dive into that uh, lesson today here. And uh, so there's a lot here, a lot of incredible teachings, and we're going to discuss, uh, as is my uh, tendency to in detail, some of the arguments that are going back and forth here to try to put them in their historical context. I think a lot of times our, uh, our tendency is to look at pictures, almost, uh, scriptures almost as if they're in a vacuum, to pick one scripture out and then just read it and try to get what we're getting out of it. But it's important to remember that all of these scriptures, are, are, are they, they come as part of a greater story. And it's my belief that the best way to understand those scriptures is to understand that greater story, understand what's going on, understand the context uh, that they are given in. Uh, so that is what we'll be uh, attempting to do today. Uh, and let's start in chapter 8, uh, verse 1, where it says, And now it came to pass that Alma returned for the land of Gideon, after having taught the people of Gideon many things which cannot be written, having established the order of the church, according as he had before done in the land of Zarahemla, yet he returned to his own house at Zarahemla to rest himself from the labors which he had performed. And I start with this verse because there's a few things that I think are interesting and worth worth noting. Uh, you know, first is this idea that he taught uh, many things uh, which cannot be written. And I will suggest that there's two possibilities as to why those things cannot be written. One, there might be too many. This could just be Mormon uh, editing down uh, a lot of the words that Alma had spoken. Uh, Alma, we re recall, he hand-wrote and it looks like really Mormon just took those two sermons in chapter 5 and 7 and just kind of copy-pasted them into uh, the plates that he was preparing. Maybe Alma had written, so down, written down so many things that he couldn't uh, include them all. So that's one possibility is what that could mean. But I would propose that another possibility, uh, things which cannot be written, um, it's possible that they cannot be written because they are so sacred. It's possible that the reason that Mormon does not include them in this record is because uh, of, of their sacred nature. And usually in scriptures, when we're talking about things that cannot be written because they are so sacred, uh, our minds should think of the endowment and think of the, of the temple. Think of the higher covenants that uh, many enter into with God that are so personal, that are so deep, so meaningful, and so sacred that it is not appropriate to write them down. And so it's possible that part of what Alma did in teaching the people of Gideon was not only did he teach them the doctrine of Christ, as we talked about last week as we discussed uh, chapter 7, but it's very possible uh, that 
is evidenced by this verse, that there are many things that cannot be written that Alma taught them, that he taught them uh, the holy order of the temple and, and the endowment process and the way in which we covenant and come even closer to Christ. Uh, then also it's interesting to note that he established the order of the church. Um, and, and when we talk about order of the church, uh, it's important to remember that we're talking about the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. Uh, that the order of the church or the order of God, the holy priesthood, is essential in establishing a church. You cannot have an ordered church, an orderly church, and a church after the order of God if that church does not have the authority of God. And we'll see today that that's something that the, uh, the members, that, that the people at Ammonihad simply do not understand. But Alma certainly understood it, and that was what he did uh, in the church in Gideon. And then finally, I love this verse because it talks about how Alma's just human. He's tired after teaching, and so he goes home and, and he rests for a little bit. You know, it really just shows how, how, uh, how human uh, he actually is. Uh, although in the story that's about to come up, we'll see some uh, almost superhuman abilities as well. Um, so he teaches, uh, he also goes on to teach in Melik, uh, according to the holy order of God. So uh, he's using the priesthood, he's establishing ch the church. Everything seems to be going well for Alma. And then he heads to Ammonihah, where he is going to teach. And uh, there, the people are not so kind to him. Uh, they reject him uh, and, and his message, and they cast him out, and they spit upon him, and they remind him that uh, he can't do anything about it, that he is no longer the, uh, the chief judge of the land, and so he has no authority over them. He is just, as far as they're concerned, he is just the head of some church that he's established that he's trying to get bigger, perhaps trying to use to gain power and authority over other people by, by preaching the message of his church and trying to establish uh, his church. And so they don't view him as a holy man at all. They view him as a con artist, as a scammer, coming to take advantage of the people by trying to teach them traditions about God and establishing a church that they'd, thank you very much, rather not have anything to do with. Uh, and so they, in that light, they, they kick him out. And so clearly these people don't understand uh, the priesthood, don't understand its importance, especially when it comes to establishing a legitimate uh, church of God. And when we say legitimate, we're talking about one that actually has the blessing of God, that has the authority and the ability to lead people uh, closer to God. Now, obviously, there's many churches that do many good things, and I believe most churches are, a bit, are able to lead people uh, close, closer to God. But when we're looking for a church, we don't want just one that just does good things or that leads me closer to God. We want, I personally at least want a church that I believe can take me all the way to God. Not just closer to God. There's lots of ways you can get closer to God. But I want to go all the way back to God. I want to know God's truth. And in order to do that, you need a church that is sanctioned by God. You need a church that has his holy authority, that is after his holy order. 
And that is what Alma is establishing throughout the land. And that is what the people in Ammonihah do not understand about it. Now, I will also say, based on these interactions, um, it's very possible that uh, these people knew Alma from before. And not just his time as a chief judge, when he was the political head uh, of the Nephite uh, kingdom, if you will. But I think it's very possible that they knew the pre-conversion Alma as well. And that is perhaps one of the reasons why they are so hard-hearted. Part of the reasons why this is such a difficult story for Alma. This is so, so heartbreaking for him. It's because part of the reason these people are so hard-hearted is because of him. Because of the teachings that he taught them earlier. It's interesting to note, I think we often have the uh, conception that if you, that, that Alma, when he was young and rebellious, uh, he was out trying to destroy the church, perhaps as a teenager, and then, you know, maybe he was 18 years old, about the time that, you know, you and I would be getting ready to go on our missions, and then the angel comes, and then he's converted, and he spends the rest of his life doing good. Um, but while that's certainly possible, I'm not sure actually that the math uh, adds up that way. Um, if you look in your scriptures, uh, when, Al- when his father Alma was listening to uh, Abinadi teaching God, t- uh, t- teaching about God, we have that as being about um, the, the, the scriptures, the, the LDS uh, scriptures tell us that was probably about a hundred and 48 BC. That's a pretty specific number. So about 148 BC. And then if we turn to uh, Alma's conversion, uh, which happens in Mosiah uh, chapter 27, we see that that's probably between 192 BC. So there is at least a about a 50 year gap then between when Alma heard Alma the Elder heard Abinadi teach, and when Alma the Younger was converted by the angel. So, if you're going to believe that Alma the Younger was converted by the angel when he was about 20, and let's just assume that Alma the Elder was, let's say, 20, when Abinadi was teaching him, uh, that would mean Alma the Elder was 50 years old when Alma the Younger uh, was born, which I think is probably unlikely. I think Alma the Younger is uh, was probably more than 20 years old when the angel came and converted him. Uh, he was likely an adult man in his 30s, maybe even, or perhaps more likely even in his 40s, uh, when the angel came and converted him. So we don't have just some punk teenager running around making his dad mad, uh, but we have a man that was well known. Perhaps he was even in, even the chief judge at the time that he was out uh, causing causing mischief, or at least he was uh, in position so that people knew who he was. Uh, otherwise, I, I guess the the judge the judgeship hadn't been uh, yet been established uh, at that time. But it's very possible that he was well, well known throughout the kingdom, because he, perhaps he was Alma's son, or perhaps because he was just very intelligent and very capable. 
Um, but at the same time, he was, you know, and it says he was secretly doing these things. So it's a long way of getting at the very real possibility that these people knew uh, pre-conversion Alma. And a lot of the philosophies and a lot of the hardness of the hearts uh, that, that was the problem that plagued these people in Ammonihah had to do with his own teaching. And that's why this was so difficult to him. And they cast him out because they didn't like this new Alma. They they had been previously converted by his old uh, persuasions and by his own logic. And, you know, very possible that the arguments that they were throwing at him were the same arguments that Alma had, had taught them years earlier. So we're getting speculative, but I don't think these things are too unrealistic. Um, so it's, and one can only imagine the, the challenge and the anguish that Alma must be going through. And perhaps that's why he was so diligent as a missionary was because he wanted to do, he wanted to undo the damage that he had previously done from his pre-conversion days. So anyway, these, uh, the people of Ammonihah cast him out, and then while he's going to another city, an angel visits him. Uh, he's very downtrodden, very sad. And so an angel comes and visits him, and in verse 15 we're taught that that angel that visits him is the same angel that visited him at the time of his conversion. So one can imagine that must have been a very, very happy uh, reunion between Alma and his angel, uh, given that this is the second time uh, that they now have met. And so uh, the angel t- uh, visits him and tells him, Alma, you got to get back to this city. There's a work for you to do here. And that's an interesting idea, because we know what happens, and it's not good. It's not good what happens. So one is left to wonder, I think this is a hard question. And, you know, for those of us that think the Book of Mormon is, is an easy book full of, uh, full of happy stories, that is absolutely not the case. The story here in Ammonihah is tragic. And in some ways it could have been avoided. And Alma was trying to avoid it. But that angel came and told him, Alma, you're supposed to go back. You're supposed to teach these people. Now, he certainly didn't tell him, and everyone that listens to you is going to be burned by fire, you're going to be cast into prison, and the whole thing is going to collapse and kill everybody. He kind of left those details out. But he told him to go back, and what happened when he went back was a disaster. But the angel told him to. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question as to why the angel would have him go back. We're, we're given some hints that, perhaps, you know, Alma... They don't stretch forth their hand, Alma and Amulek, to to save those that are burning because the Lord needs to exercise judgment and those people are going to be saved anyway. But the idea that the angel would tell him to go back so that these people would be put in a position where they could commit horrible sins and the Lord could then punish them according to those horrible sins, I I don't think that really, that doesn't resonate with me, that the Lord would, would do that. It seems like this disaster could have been avoided had the angel simply not come and told Alma to come back. So there must be a good reason that uh, I'm not uh, in tune enough with the spirit to understand. But, but that's the situation uh, that we have. Of course, after receiving this angel's uh, message, commandment, to return back to Ammonihah, uh, Alma does so speedily. And right away when he enters the city, he meets a friend. Uh, he's taken in by Amulek where he stays for many days with him, uh, blessing his house, uh, teaching him. Uh, and uh, we, we learned that Amulek had been told that there was, by an angel himself, perhaps the same angel, 
that he was going to uh, meet a prophet that was going to need his help, and he was to take care of him. Now, certainly Amulek had previously been prepared spiritually uh, to receive the great blessings that he did. There's a reason the Lord chose Amulek to be Alma's companion. And perhaps that's the reason he went back, so that Amulek could be uh, could become Alma's uh, companion in teaching the gospel going forward. Um, but uh, if nothing else, certainly that must have been an incredible tender mercy for Alma, you know, knowing how challenging it would be for him to go back to right away uh, meet a friend, somebody that is going to, that takes him in, uh, that is receptive to his message, uh, must have given Alma a lot of faith. Uh, and, and a lot of confidence going forward, knowing that uh, the Lord was with him and the Lord was going to take care of him, uh, as evidenced by the fact that uh, a man right away uh, was receptive to the message that Alma was delivering. And then in the end of chapter 8, it's time for Alma to start uh, teaching his message to the people, and Amulek is told to go with him. And one can only imagine what is going through the thoughts of uh, Amulek's head, as he knows that uh, the Lord, uh, he knows through Alma that the Lord wants him to teach his people. Certainly he was uh, aware of, of the challenges and the dangers that that might present. Uh, so in chapter 9, Alma begins teaching his message again to the people. And one can only wonder how his message changed uh, from the first time that he unsuccessfully taught them. Uh, we don't know, but uh, he begins in chapter 9 teaching the people, and he begins in kind of the usual uh, Book of Mormon prophet fashion. When we teach people, we begin by reminding them of the story of Lehi, uh, reminding them how the Lord uh, saved Lehi, saved this people, brought them over the seas, preserved them as they did so. You know, stories of deliverance, stories of miraculous ways in which the Lord has blessed them, uh, blessed their fathers, And then they're given the admonition to reflect upon that and remember how the Lord has blessed them. A very, very standard way. And we saw Alma doing this earlier in chapter 5. We've seen just about every Book of Mormon prophet uh, that teaches uh, begins doing so uh, kind of in this way. Alma, of course, is no different. Uh, Then in chapter 9, verse 13, uh, we are given this reminder. In verse 13, where it says, Behold, do you not remember the words which he spake unto Lehi, saying, Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land? And again, it is said that inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. So this, again, is a message that we've heard many, many times. Uh, and here, and then Alma goes on to tell them, you know, this is, you're aware of this promise. Keep the commandments, you're blessed. You don't keep the commandments, you're cut off from the presence of the Lord. Uh, and he, Alma says, look, the Lamanites have clearly been cut off from the presence of the Lord. Look at what a disaster their society is. Look at the way in which we, the Nephites just recently beat them back in several battles. Clearly, they are not prospering and being blessed. So isn't it obvious that this is true? If you keep the commandments, you're blessed. But then Alma goes on to remind them it, but, and says, but look, they at least have an excuse for not keeping the commandments. And that's because of the traditions of their fathers. For hundreds of years, they've been teaching their children not to keep the commandments uh, and that the whole thing is, is a lie. So at least they have a good excuse for not keeping the commandments. But you, people of Ammonihah, 
you don't have any excuse. And so things are going to be, uh, things are going to be difficult for you if you do not repent. Of course, they don't like that message. Uh, so Alma continues in verse 23, where he states, Now behold, I say unto you that if this people, who have received so many blessings from the hand of the Lord, should transgress contrary to the light and knowledge which they do have, I say unto you that if this be the case, that if they should fall into transgression, it would be far more tolerable for the Lamanites than for them. Alma's lesson here to the people of Ammonihah is you guys have a real problem because the Lord has blessed you with so much. And so Alma puts forward the idea or reemphasizes the idea that the blessings that we receive are based on how we react to the light and knowledge that we have, to the light and knowledge that we have received. For the Lamanites, they don't have a lot of light and knowledge because of the traditions of their father, of their fathers. And so even though they're not keeping the commandments, it's going to be better for them than it is for you because you guys know better. You guys have that light and knowledge. And I think that's certainly uh, something that we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints should keep in mind. Because we believe that we have a lot of light and knowledge. Now, I think we have to be careful that we don't overestimate the amount that we have. Because according to the Ninth Article of Faith, we believe there are yet many great and important things pertaining to the Kingdom of God that are to be revealed. And so we should be humble and admit that we don't know everything. There's still many answers that we don't have questions to, but we do know a lot. We at least know the plan of salvation. We are familiar with Christ, and we have covenants, and we have authority that we enter into. And so based on the standard that Alma gives to the people of Ammonihah, we are going to be held to a very high standard, to a very high level. And so it is absolutely our obligation to make sure that we live up to those standards, live up to the privileges that are ours. Verses uh, 26 through 28. And not many days hence, the Son of God shall come in his glory, and his glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, equity, and truth, full of patience, mercy, and longsuffering, quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. And behold, he cometh to redeem those who will be baptized unto repentance through faith on his name. Therefore prepare ye the way of the Lord, for the time is at hand that all men shall reap a reward of their works according to that which they, which they have been. If they have been righteous, they shall reap the salvation of their souls according to the power and deliverance of Jesus Christ. And if they have been evil, they shall reap the damnation of their souls according to the power and captivation of the devil. Alma's message here is quite clear. Christ is coming and he is going to bring about redemption. Now, to you and I, that sounds like a very happy message. We are looking forward to Christ and the redemption he brings because we believe in Christ and we believe that his redemption will be a beautiful blessing to us. But to the people of Ammonihah, that's not necessarily a good thing. That's not what they want to hear because they are not living their lives in a way that will prepare them to receive the blessings that come from the redemption of Jesus Christ. If to redeem something means to take it back, to put it in its original state, 
uh, or in the natural state in which it belongs, that's great for those that are trying to keep the commandments. But for those that have ignored the commandments, for those that have ignored God, that is not a happy proposition. And so the result of teaching that Christ is coming is that the message that these people receive is that means that your actions have consequences. So you had better prepare yourself and you had better repent because your actions are going to lead to results. And those results, if you don't repent and if you aren't ready, are not going to be to your liking. So you better repent and you better make some changes. And then he tells them that they, uh, that their hearts are hard and therefore they need to repent. And not surprisingly, they're a little bit angry about that. Uh, and then after that, he sits down and it's Amulek's turn. And one can only imagine uh, what Amulek's thinking. You know, thanks for setting me up, Alma. Good job. Now they're all angry and now it's my turn. Uh, but we turn to, turn to chapter 10 where we have uh, Amulek uh, begin, begins his teaching. And, you know, I'm very inspired by Amulek. We don't know his background we don't know how long he has uh, been a, a religious, a spiritual person. Certainly the Lord was preparing him. But uh, he, you know, he's willing to jump in right away. Uh, he doesn't mess around. He doesn't back down. And this is, you know, our, to our understanding, this is the first time he's, he's out teaching uh, the message of Jesus Christ. And he's, oof, talk about jumping in the deep end to get started. But, uh, but he goes right at it. Uh, verses 5 and 6. Nevertheless, after all this, I never have known much of the ways of the Lord and his mysteries and marvelous power. I said I never had known much of these things, but behold, I mistake, for I have seen much of his mysteries and his marvelous power, yea, even in the preservation of the lives of this people. Nevertheless, I did harden my heart, for I was called many times and I would not hear. Therefore, I knew concerning these things, Yet I would not know. Therefore I went on rebelling against God in the wickedness of my heart, even until the fourth day of this seventh month, which is the tenth year of the reign of the judges. Amalek here teaches a very interesting principle. He recognizes the fact that, yeah, he wasn't, he didn't have a lot of spiritual experiences before, at least not many that he recognized. But apparently one of the things that Alma did, or that the Spirit did as he was taught by Alma, was to learn to recognize that he had had spiritual experiences before, even though he hadn't recognized him. The Lord had been speaking to him. The Lord had been giving him spiritual experiences. He just was not in a position that he was able to recognize them for what they were. And I think that's an important lesson as we try to, to teach people, as we try to help either new people learn about God, learn about Christ, and learn about the gospel, or as we try to help people come back, a lot of times it's simply a matter of perspective and being able to put your past experiences into the new light of the gospel. I think a lot of times as, as people are looking to uh, either investigate the church or for reasons to come back, or even looking for reasons to stay. Uh, they're looking for a new miracle, looking for some type of sign, looking for some type of a powerful spiritual experience uh, to help them out and to give them that little bit of evidence that they're looking for. But I love Amulek's message here, which is that you don't necessarily need a brand new spiritual experience. In fact, chances are you don't need one at all. 
and that you've previously had them. You just were not in the light to be able to recognize them. And we'll see that's part of the teachings here of both Alma and Amulek is that our testimonies, our ability to recognize God is not dependent on whether or not he's actually there, but rather it's a matter of our hearts, whether or not we are able to recognize the Lord's hand in our lives. And even if we don't recognize it, it doesn't mean it's not there. All it means is that we ourselves are not spiritually significant, we are not sufficiently attuned to the Spirit so that we can recognize the blessings of the Lord, so that we can recognize His hand as it guides and as it, uh, and it guides us through our life. So you don't necessarily need to have brand new spiritual experiences uh, in order to uh, recognize that perhaps your previous experiences were very spiritual. You just didn't know that you were having them because your heart was not ready uh, at the time. And so Amulek goes on to recount the story of the angel visiting him. And the result of this is that uh, everyone is, is shocked that there is somebody else in their community that believes and thinks like Alma. Uh, it's a great surprise to them. And, of course, we learn that Amulek is, you know, according to him, a man with uh, no small reputation among all those who know him. Uh, that's in verse 4. So not exactly sure what that means, a no small reputation among those who know you. Well, right, I mean, those who know you know your reputation. Um, but at least it, would, it, it, it seems to show that Amulek is just not a normal guy, um, that, that he has some clout within society. Uh, and uh, financially, he seems to have done well through his own work. And so uh, so this is not just, you know, some random guy that Alma found on the street. But this is, uh, this is someone with, uh, a little, with some persuasion, with some say uh, in their community that uh, believes uh, the things that Alma is teaching. And so he recounts this story. Everyone is shocked. Um, and then the lawyers uh, start to get involved. Uh, and they're now their job is to look for inconsistencies uh, in what Am Alma and Amulek are teaching. Because that is their job, and that's how these lawyers uh, make their money. Now, of course, my own reputation, or my own profession is that of a lawyer, so I'm a little uh, hesitant uh, at this part. Um, now, I will say I'm a, uh, I'm a corporate lawyer, so I'm not the type that uh, litigates and likes to get into fights, but this isn't about me. Um, and so, uh, so but, but here, clearly the Book of Mormon author, uh, Mormon, uh, is saying something about certain people within society. Call them lawyers or judges here. Uh, call them something else uh, if you want. But it's, it's people that benefit uh, from chaos. People that benefit uh, from disruptions and from uh, disputes and from fights within society. And we see... According to the Book of Mormon, uh, according to Mormon, uh, these are not good people for society. And they're actually preparing a society for their downfall. And so in commentary about the, the riots and everything that is going on in the U.S., I would just say, be very careful of those who benefit from the chaos, who benefit from the fighting. Do not listen to them. Doubt their motives. 
be skeptical of what they're saying because they benefit from the tension and from the strife. Whether it be politicians looking to divide so that they can you know, bring a portion of society under their tent, or whether it be those who, who study a certain philosophy that is based on uh, tensions within society, uh, and they therefore promote the tensions so that they can be held out as experts called in and put on television shows so that they can explain those situations. Clearly, one of the messages of the Book of Mormon is that anyone who causes contentions within society, and of course the Savior famously taught later in Third Nephi that the spirit of contention is of the devil, people that bring about that spirit of contention, that profit and otherwise benefit from the spirit of contention, uh, should be, uh, we are warned against them. We are warned against them. They do not have our our benefit, our best interests at heart. And instead of looking for those that preach and stir up contention and dissension within society, we should be attuning our messages. And and what we are looking for is we decide which of the many voices to listen to. And in today's society of social media, there is multiple, uh, multiple, multiple times more different voices that we can listen to Uh, than there were back in Alma and Amulek's day. But certainly we should look for those who teach peace, who teach love, who teach of Christ, who teach of harmony and reconciliation and atonement. Uh, Those are the voices that we should be looking and listening to. So as chapter 10 ends, uh, Amulek is being confronted by these lawyers and uh, interestingly, we then, in, starting in chapter 11, we get this uh, detailed explanation as to the different currencies in the, the Nephite money system. And uh, the result of that is one lawyer, whose name is Zeezrom, uh, confronts Amulek and offers him six uh, aunties of silver if he will uh, deny God. Uh, Let's go to verse 20 uh, to to, to read about uh, this situation. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 20. Now, it was for the sole purpose to get gain because they received their wages according to their employ. Therefore, they did stir up the people to riotings and all manner of disturbances and wickedness, that they might have more employ, that they might get money according to the suits which were brought before them. Therefore, they did stir up the people against Alma and Amulek. So, Sorry, a little out of order there, but that verse obviously was talking about uh, the ways in which these these lawyers and others stirred up the people uh, into conflict and chaos. And here they saw a great chance to do so with Alma and Amulek teaching. They thought, boy, there's going to be a lot of chaos, a lot of disorder coming uh, from these guys teaching. Let's try and stir this up. And so they are obviously going to financially benefit from Alma and Amulek teaching. And so knowing that they are going to financially benefit from Alma and Amulek teaching, they offer, or at least the Ezram does, he offers six aunties of silver uh, to Amulek if he will deny the existence of God. And that's interesting, right? I mean, it's, it's almost unbelievable. It's like, what, how stupid do you think Amulek is? Uh, but I think in some ways that shows it's, it's you know, really uh, a good example of projection, I think. I think these... These lawyers were so 
focused on money, and they thought anything could be purchased with money. They thought, you know, all we'll have to do is persuade Amulek to, to, to deny God, and then we'll have total chaos, and we're going to make a lot of money out of this. So they were willing to pay him six aunties of silver, which is 42 days' worth of labor for one of these lawyers. So, I, you know, think about how much a, a lawyer might make in a year, and think how much uh, 40, 42 days of their labor might be worth. And uh, it's probably a pretty good chunk of money that Amulek is being offered here if he will deny God. You know, and it, again, it shows how, how, how focused, how mercenary these, these lawyers are, that they would think, you know, we'll, we'll profit from it. He'll, he'll just take the money and go with it. Um, you know, shows them how, how little they think of religion, how little they think of people that actually uh, believe in God, that they would just give up God for 42 days worth of a good salary. But of course, Zeezrom does not take the money, <clears throat> and, uh, and so the, the discussion begins. Uh, verses 34 through 37 in chapter 11. And Zeezrom said again, Shall he save his people in their sins? And Amulek answered and said unto him, I say unto you, he shall not, for it is impossible for him to deny his word. Now Zeezrom said unto the people, See that you remember these things, for he said, There is but one God, yet he saith that the Son of God shall come, but he shall not save his people, as though he had authority to command God. Now Amulek said again unto him, Behold, thou hast lied, for thou sayest that I spake as though I had authority to command God, because I said he shall save his people in their sins. And I say unto you again that he cannot save them in their sins, for I cannot deny his word. And he hath said that no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, how can ye be saved except ye inherit the kingdom of heaven? Therefore, ye cannot be saved in your sins. Now, I love this back and forth between them. I love how, you know, you think of, the, the, the different fights, the different arguments, the different uh, ideas that they're putting forth as they try to really persuade the masses uh, that they're right. Uh, Zeezrom was trying to catch uh, Amulek uh, in, a, in self-contradiction, and Amulek doesn't fall for it. <clears throat> Amulek says, uh, no, I didn't say that God cannot save his people. That is not at all what I said. Because that's actually the message that Zeezrom and the rest of the people want to hear. They want to know that God's not going to save us. That's, that's what they're pushing. Because either he can't or, other, or he doesn't need to. And if God's not going to save us, remember what Alma was teaching them. Without Christ coming for redemption, then our actions don't mean anything. It's only because Christ is going to come to redeem his people that our actions have meaning. If there's no Christ to come, then we can do whatever we want to. And that's the philosophy that the people of Ammonihah have been basing their lives on, is that there's no Christ coming, so we have free reign to do whatever we want. But Amulek shoots that down, and he says, that's not at all what I said, you liar. I said Christ will come, and but he can't save his people in their sins. They have to repent before they are eligible to receive the blessings of salvation. Verses 40 and 41. And he shall come into the world to redeem his people, and he shall take upon him the transgressions of those who believe on his name. And these are they that shall have eternal life, and salvation cometh to none else. Therefore the wicked remain as though there had been no redemption made, except it be the loosing of the bands of death, 
For behold, the day cometh that all shall rise from the dead and stand before God and be judged according to their works. Okay, this is not the message that these people want to hear. They don't want to be they don't want to hear a message about responsibility and standing before God and being judged for our works. They want to hear that there is no judgment, that God is not coming to save his people because we don't need to be saved. If there is a God, we're all going to be saved. And that's, you know, this is a, a common teaching among antichrists throughout the Book of Mormon. Nehor is the one teaching this in Alma chapter 1 just a few lessons ago doesn't matter what you do, everyone is going to be saved. And to, and to believe otherwise is just mean. We're all going to be saved. And of course, that is the message of society right now. We don't need a savior. And if we do, he's going to save all of us. Otherwise, that would be mean. That would be unfair. But that's not what the gospel teaches. Verses 42 and 43. Now there is a death which is called a temporal death, and the death of Christ shall loose the bands of this temporal death, that all shall be raised from this temporal death. The spirit and the body shall be reunited again in its perfect form. Both limb and joint shall be restored to its proper frame, even as we now are at this time. And we shall be brought to stand before God, knowing even as we know now, and have a bright recollection of all our guilt." Now, we usually read those verses as being happy verses, evidence that everyone is going to be resurrected. I mean, what else could be the result of those? How else could you read that as a happy thing that we're all going to be resurrected? Well, if you're the people of Ammonihah and you've based your entire life on either the belief that there is no God or that there is no judgment and that we will not stand before God to be held accountable for our actions, the idea of a resurrection the idea that we are responsible for, uh, for, for the sins that we commit and that responsibility continues forever because of the resurrection, well, that's not a very happy message, actually, because that means you've got to pay attention. That means you've got to be responsible for your life. That means you have to repent. You have to make changes if you're not doing good. And that's not the message that they want to hear. They want to just keep doing whatever it is that they want to be doing and not worrying about repenting and accepting Christ and changing their actions. Those are hard, but that's not anything that they want uh, to have to do with. So whereas we hear the message of the resurrection being a happy, a wonderful thing, they hear the message as very threatening, as something that they want absolutely nothing to do with. So Amulek, having taught them that... Uh, they will be responsible for their actions, and they will be resurrected, and Christ cannot save them in their sins, but can only save them from their sins as they repent and come unto Christ, and they better do so because you are going to be resurrected. You are going to have eternal life. You are going to be around for a long, long time. After Amulek has taught them that, now it's Alma's turn. and In chapter 12, we turn to Alma's teachings. And we see that Zeezrom is starting to be impacted by what Amulek has to say. He's starting to realize, put the pieces together that, oh, this is this might not turn out so well for me if I don't make a few changes. And so he's starting to get a little curious. We don't know how many other people within uh, this body of, of this crowd that are listening are also starting to be pricked in their hearts. But certainly we, we get indications in chapter 12 that Zeezrom is starting to 
uh, starting to think and think about things in, in a little bit different of a light. Uh, verses 9 through 11 in chapter 12. And now Alma began to expound these things unto him, saying, It is given unto many to know the mysteries of God. Nevertheless, they are laid under a strict command that they shall not impart only according to the portion of his word, which he doth grant unto the children of men, according to the heed and diligence which they give unto him. And therefore he that will harden his heart, the same receiveth the lesser portion of the word. And he that will not harden his heart, to him is given the greater portion of the word, until it is given unto him to know the mysteries of God, until he can know them in full. And they that will harden their hearts, to them is given the lesser portion of the word, until they know nothing concerning his mysteries. And then they are taken captive by the devil, and led by his will, down to destruction." Now, this is what is meant by the chains of hell. Very important concept that Alma is teaching here. And you can tell he's teaching it to a Zezrim who is just kind of teetering. He's not quite sure where to go or what to do. And I think there's a lot of us that are in that situation, especially in the church right now. A lot of us, in some ways, just aren't quite sure what the next step is going to be for us. Perhaps we've been members of the church our entire lives, and there's things in the church that we love that, that, are, that are great, that, that we recognize their beauty and their goodness. But we also are aware of uh, historical events or perhaps prior teachings or prior policies or ways of doing so that we aren't quite sure that we really agree with. And so we're, we're teetering. And Alma's message to these people, to these teeterers like Zezrum and, and like many others is, look, soften your heart. Don't be so hard-hearted. And I don't think he means that really as, as an insult, you know, you hard-hearted jerk. I'm not quite sure that's what he's going for. What I think he's saying is give faith a chance. Give it a chance. Soften your heart. Be open to new ideas. Be willing to look at things in a way that you perhaps previously were not willing to look. And that can go both ways. I think sometimes in the church we get... Um, so caught up in certain ways of, of, of viewing the church uh, that normally would seem good, uh, you know, viewing the church as almost this, uh, this body that is incapable of making a mistake, of leaders that are infallible, of bishops that are always inspired. And of course, that's how we're going to teach things, but we all know that's not how the church always operates. So perhaps we need a new paradigm in the way that we view certain aspects of the church. Perhaps we need to hold the church not to quite such an impossibly perfect standard. Perhaps we need to be open to new ideas, to new ways of viewing and understanding the church and our relationship with the church and what the church's mission is and what it's intended to do. But regardless, Alma teaches us here, if we soften our hearts, if we open our hearts, if we exercise faith, the mysteries of God are available to us. And only then is he, available, is he able to make them available to us. But if we shut down, if we harden our hearts, if we refuse uh, to even consider the things of God, well, then we just get a, 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 a downward, a vicious cycle downward that leads to what Alma refers to as the chains of hell in which you end up believing in nothing because your heart has been hardened it cannot be penetrated and all you are left with is skepticism and darkness 
and doubts and no faith. Religion will always be based on faith. There is always a certain aspect of irrationality behind religion. That's the nature of religion. That's what faith is. It's where you take your rational mind as far as you possibly can, and then you say, you know what? I don't get this, but I'm not going to stop. I'm willing to take the next step. I'm willing to soften my heart and accept things that I do not mentally understand. And Alma's promise is that as you do that, you begin to understand. And things that were previously incomprehensible, things that previously didn't make sense to your mind, now all of a sudden start making sense to your heart. If you will, if you're willing to exercise faith and keep that heart soft. If you harden it, you're never going to get it. And you'll only end up with darkness. And that's what Alma is telling Zeezrom. Zeezrom, open your mind, open your heart. Give these things a chance. Then he continues, verses 13 and 14. Then if our hearts have been hardened, yea, if we have hardened our hearts against the word, insomuch that it has not been found in us, then will our state be awful, for then we shall be condemned. For our words will condemn us, yea, all our works will condemn us. We shall not be found spotless, and our thoughts will also condemn us. And in this awful state, we shall not dare to look up to our God. And we would fain be glad if we could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us, to hide us from his presence. So this vicious cycle will continue, Alma says. If you keep your hearts, if you keep your hearts hardened, it's only going to get worse. Your hard heart leads to actions that are not consistent with the, world, with the will of God. It leads to uh, skepticism, making it impossible for the word of God to penetrate our hearts. And the result will be that we will be left out. We will not be able to return to God's presence. Verse 16. And now behold, I say unto you, then cometh a death, even a second death, which is a spiritual death. Then is a time that whosoever dieth in his sins as to temporal death shall also die a spiritual death. Yea, he shall die as to things pertaining unto righteousness. So Alma says the dangers of this hard heart is that you are going to have a spiritual death. And this is the second death. The first death, so Alma talks about three different deaths, actually. He talks about two spiritual deaths. The first one is what happens when we come here and commit sin. And we have an atonement to cover that if we will repent. And then the, another death is the physical death that we all know that we're all going to go through. And that's what, uh, that's what Amulek just talked about with Zeezrom. And we know that Christ is going to help us to overcome that physical death. And we are all going to be brought before God and we are all going to be judged. But what the death that Alma is really concerned about is this third death. And he calls it the second death or the second spiritual death. And that's where we've hardened our hearts so much that the word of God cannot penetrate us and we are spiritually cast off forever. Those are the chains of hell. That's what Alma is most concerned about is that we keep our heart hardened. We do not hear the word of God when it is preached to us and we become full of skepticism and doubt and darkness. And the result is God is not able to touch us. God is not able to reach down and save us because we will not let him, because our hearts are so hard that there is no way that God can penetrate them. And that is what Alma is concerned about. 
Uh, and so as Alma is teaching these things, you can tell Zeezrom is he's, he's going through it. This is really difficult for him because he realizes he's going to have to make some changes. And so one of their other judges then puts forward the idea that says, well, what about this cherubim and a flaming sword preventing Adam and Eve from uh, living forever? Uh, how are you saying it's possible that we can live forever? What are you talking about this resurrection? We can't live forever. The scriptures tell us we can't live forever. And this is interesting, right? Because it shows that they are aware of the story of Adam and Eve. It shows that this is, they have a, at least a decent familiarity uh, with the Old Testament, that they know about cherubim and a flaming sword. I mean, how many Christians today know that the Lord placed cherubim and flaming sword to prevent the weight of the tree of life? so that Adam and Eve could not put their hand, put forth their hand and live forever. So it's an interesting question. But of course, Alma's got an answer to it. Verse 24. And we see that death comes upon mankind, yea, the death which has been spoken of by Amulek, which is the temporal death. Nevertheless, there was a space granted unto man in which he might repent. Therefore, this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state which has been spoken of by us, which is after the resurrection of the dead. So the purpose of death, then, is to make this life a temporary state. We are not intended to be on this earth forever. And this can be a comforting doctrine. I remember when I spoke at my mother's funeral a little over two years ago, uh, this was something that I mentioned because it was very comforting to me at the time. The recognition that this life is not supposed to be forever. That would be a disaster, actually. This life is a temporary probationary state in which we can prepare for the eternal state to come, in which we can be separated from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, in which there is a veil cast between us and we are left to our own decisions to make up, to, to use our agency to decide what are we going to do. Are we going to choose to accept Christ, to repent of our sins and try to become better? Or will we keep our hearts hardened? Doubtful of God. Doubtful of his ability to save. Unwilling to uh, make the changes in our lives to bring about uh, repentance. To make it possible to prepare for us to return to the presence of God. So if Adam and Eve had partaken of the fruit of the tree of life, had they at that time put forward their hands if cherubim and a flaming sword were not placed there, had they partaken of the tree of life after they had just sinned, according to these stories and, and the understanding of Book of Mormon prophets, they would have forever been stuck in this limbo situation in which they are stuck in this earth. They cannot get back to God because of the sins that they have committed, but they cannot die because they've partaken of the tree of life. And that is what uh, death brings about it allows us an escape from this world and that is absolutely necessary because we are not intended to be here forever this is a temporary training ground which we where we come for a time where we learn where we grow where we struggle where we are challenged and where we learn to repent and to overcome those challenges through faith in jesus christ and then we are intended to leave this earth to return to god's presence Verses 30 through 32. And they began from that time forth to call on his name, meaning Adam and Eve. Therefore God conversed with men and made known unto them the plan of redemption which had been prepared from the foundation of the world. 
And this he made known unto them according to their faith and repentance and their holy works. Wherefore he gave commandments unto them, unto men, they having first transgressed the first commandments as to things which were temporal, and becoming as gods, knowing good from evil, placing themselves in a state to act, or being placed in a state to act according to their wills and pleasures, whether they do evil or to do good. Therefore God gave unto them commandments after having made known unto them the plan of redemption, that they should not do evil, the penalty thereof being a second death, which was an everlasting death as to things pertaining unto righteousness. For on such the plan of redemption could have no power, for the works of justice could not be destroyed, be destroyed according to the supreme goodness of God. According to these verses, after Adam and Eve had left the, the Garden of Eden, after they, had after they had fallen, they left the Garden of Eden and God sent messengers to them to first teach them the plan of salvation. And this is verse 32. And then after they learned the plan of salvation, then they learned about the commandments that they were to keep. Then they learned about the covenants that they were entered to enter into. Then they learned about the ordinances that they were to receive in order to prepare themselves to return to live with God. And so by, by doing so, by giving them commandments, men and women were free to choose to whether or not they were going to uh, prepare their lives, to order their lives uh, so that they would follow Jesus Christ, so that they would repent, preparing themselves to return to the presence of God. And there is an order to this. There had to be a fall. We had to leave the presence of God. And then once we left the presence of God, God teaches us the principles of the plan of salvation. And then once we understand those principles, then commandments are given to us. You remember earlier had how Alma had talked about how we are judged according to the light that we have received. Once we have the light of the understanding of the plan of salvation, then it is our responsibility to follow the commandments. If we're lacking that understanding of the plan of salvation, God doesn't just give us random commandments and expect us to follow them. We are most accountable for our keeping of the commandments as we come to an understanding of the plan of salvation as we come to recognize the importance of commandments, as we come to develop a relationship with our Savior, and as we recognize that he is our source of mercy, that he is the way in which we can return to the Father. As we understand this plan, as, we learn, as those principles penetrate our heart, then we are responsible for keeping those commandments. Verses 33 through 34. But God did call on men in the name of his son, this being the plan of redemption that was laid, saying, If ye will repent and harden not your hearts, then will I have mercy upon you through mine only begotten son. Therefore, whosoever repenteth and hardeneth not his heart, he shall have claim on mercy through mine only begotten son unto remission of his sins, and these shall enter into my rest. So if we will repent and remain humble, through Christ, we can receive mercy and we can enter into the rest of God. That is the promise that the Lord has for us. And what do we mean by the rest of God? Uh, for this, we turn to a, a quote from uh, President Joseph Fielding Smith. 
uh, Joseph F. Smith, I apologize, in which he said, What does it mean to enter into the rest of the Lord? Speaking for myself, it means that through the love of God, I have been won over to him, so that I can feel at rest in Christ, that I may no more be disturbed by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning and craftiness of men, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, and that I am established in the knowledge and testimony of Jesus Christ, so that no power can turn me aside from the straight and narrow path that leads back into the presence of God, to enjoy exaltation in his glorious kingdom, that from this time henceforth I shall enjoy that rest until I shall rest with him in the heavens. So according to President Smith, rest, the rest of the Lord, the rest that Alma promises that comes as we repent, as we receive Christ, as we change our lives to follow him, comes as we, as, as, as grace is realized upon us, through the name of Christ, and as we recognize him, as we take him upon ourselves, we're no longer disturbed by the craziness, by the insanity that is going on. And that is especially applicable in our world today. Those that would stir us up, those that would get us angered and frustrated by the little things that are going on, we recognize that those are only temporary. But when we have entered the rest of the Lord, those things, I'm not going to say they don't matter, but they don't bother us as much as they normally would. We recognize them for what they are. In the meantime, keeping in front of our minds our faith in Christ, our hope that we will return to the presence of God, that we will be with him, no matter what happens to the world, that we are responsible for our own agency and we will use that agency to exercise faith in God, preparing ourselves to return to his presence. Final verse in the ch- uh, final verse uh, verse 37. And now my brethren, seeing we know these things and they are true, let us repent and harden not our hearts that we will provoke not the Lord our God to pull down his wrath upon us in in these his second commandments which he has given unto us. But let us enter into the rest of God which is prepared according to his word. I think a perfect way to, to end this lesson uh, with these, these verses here is Alma uh, continues his, his lecture to these people. You know, it seems like he's speaking to Zeezrom specifically. He knows that he's teetering, but he's preaching to everyone that is teetering, everyone that is struggling, everyone that has ever thought, gosh, there's a lot going on in this world. This is really difficult sometimes. It's hard to keep faith in God. It's hard to believe everything that's, that, that I'm taught. I don't have a lot of witnesses. The, the people of Ammonihah were surprised that there was more than one because they weren't about to just believe one guy, one guy who was just started his church. They were surprised that there was someone else, but there's still not that many. Why are we supposed to believe these guys? Life can be a challenge. And this is a great verse to, to end on. You know, if you know these things, if you, can, if you can have faith in that plan of salvation, knowing God, knowing your relationship with him. Let's repent. Let's not harden our hearts. Let's not challenge God, but let's have faith in him. Faith in this second estate, which he calls his second commandments, which is interesting. But let's have faith in this, in this, in this world and where we are. Let's have faith that it has a purpose, that we're here to do good, that we're here to keep the commandments of God. Let's not be distressed when we realize and that, that it's only temporary because death is necessary. 
But let's have faith that we know that after we endure death, after we leave this life, we have the opportunity of living with God forever if we will repent. But it requires repentance. It requires a change of heart. It requires us living in ways that might not necessarily be the ways that we might want to live, or at least initially want to. And that is why this message is so hard for the people of Ammonihah, and eventually they reject it. They are not willing to repent. But I hope that we all will, that we'll all soften our hearts, that we'll have the mighty change of heart, and repent and accept the message of Jesus Christ as taught in the Book of Mormon. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.